Blog Talk Radio. Monitoring the innovation impulse from idea to business model and emerging best practices. Welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of the show. And joining me in the virtual studio is my colleague and principal co-host and co-founder of Pop Health Week, Mr. Fred Goldstein. Hey, Fred. Hello, Greg. How is it out on the West Coast this morning? Uh, we're we're uh, we're doing great. We we we've been suffering from June gloom in July, but the last couple of days have been just totally awesome. And I've actually gotten to surf a little bit, so that that that, that means life is good with me. So for those of you not familiar with Fred, he is a subject matter expert with deep roots in the hospital health plan, health wellness and prevention space, from disease management to population health. Fred is a board member and past chair of the Population Health Alliance having most recently served as its executive director and now captains the ship at Accountable Health LLC, a co-sponsor of this broadcast. And now a few words about our special guest today, Jay Lee, MD. Dr. Lee is an innovative primary care physician and noted thought leader in the continuing value proposition of primary care to the health of the American people. As an associate medical director, as associate medical director of practice transformation at Memorial Care Medical Group, Dr. Lee is responsible for leading implementation of the patient-centered medical home model in practice locations from Long Beach to San Clemente. As Director of Health Policy at the Long Beach Memorial Family Medicine Residency Program, his role is to educate residents and medical students about the policy world that lives upstream from the world of patient care and how to integrate this understanding into clinical practice so that the health and well-being of patients and communities are optimized. Dr. Lee was also recently honored by his peers and elected as incoming president of the California Academy of Family Physicians, whom I recommend you follow on Twitter via CAFP underscore Family Docs, and also follow Dr. Lee on Twitter via at Family Doc Wonk. So with that brief intro, Fred, over to you. Help us get to know this activist physician leader. Thank you so much, Greg, and welcome, Jay. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, thank you for this uh, today. We're really excited to have you. This month we've been focusing on primary care and population health, and as uh, in your introduction, uh, Greg discussed this one of your roles with uh, Memorial. Could you talk more about what you do on a day-to-day basis there in regards to practice transformation and patient-centered medical homes? Yeah, happy to do that. I um, during, during the week, I, I, I should emphasize that I still am a clinician. I have a, a small panel of patients that I continue to see, and that certainly helps keep me grounded in terms of the, um, the, the joys and the, the woes of practicing primary care these days. 
Um, but I've uh, you know been given the opportunity the last several years to really focus, um, I guess, my leadership practice on um, developing capacity for us to do patient-centered medical home uh, in our uh, practice sites from Long Beach to San Clemente. Um, what that basically means is that um, I, I, we we really started from ground zero. We had um, little, if any, resources uh, to do this, um, and and a little bit of hope and uh, knowledge uh, to to move that forward. But at, over the years, what we've been able to do is to uh, bring the patient centered medical home concept to uh, half of our practices uh, in 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 the geographic spread, and um, we're in the process right now of really focusing a lot of our work on uh, what we're calling an innovation center, which is uh, a, a, an office that where we're, we're hoping to accelerate a lot of these changes, again, to kind of build that data capacity, build the leadership capacity, um, and uh, uh, I guess empower the office sites to be able to not only care for the patients that come through the door, but to really look at populations as a whole and figure out how best to interface with the community around us. So Jay, what sorts of um, data and analytics tools have you put in or are you uh, using now? Great question. So we're, um, what we found in the beginning is that um, data um, was really held in um, various cul-de-sacs, I'll call them, and the cul-de-sacs were determined based on business lines. So if we wanted data around financials, they were pretty much housed in the financial department. If we wanted things around um, clinical data, you know, we have a, a, a medical management slash performance improvement department that's kind of uh, focused on those areas. Satisfaction was sitting in, in uh, the, the silo of, of patient experience. And um, what we've really tried to do over the years is to start to move some of those streams into uh, aligning uh, pools uh, so that they're all kind of feeding into a data warehouse. And um, we have um, folks that are involved in business intelligence uh, to help us build that capacity to do that. We're on the cusp of making that happen. And what's been driving that um, to some degree has been um, the, really the need for our patient center medical home offices to be able to have that data in front of them so that they can make reasonable decisions about how to um, optimize the care that's being provided for patients. And so it's been a little bit of a slog, um, but it's a steady process, and we have a vision for what we think uh, we're going to need, um, that this is not all going to be housed centrally, but really we need to have this data available at the point of care. Right, so you're looking to influence both the visit itself and then possibly use the data for identification and other purposes for those that may not be coming in? That's correct, um, because, you know, I think the old model of just caring for those who are coming through the doors is insufficient, uh, and we certainly have a responsibility to impact the health of the zip codes that surround our offices and, and, and our hospitals. And as you've been implementing these these newer systems in the PCMH model, what's been the uh, feedback you're getting from the providers? Yeah, another great question. I, I think um, in the beginning, um, I, there may have been some physicians who um, were just hoping we would go away. Uh, <laughs> and what I mean by that is it, it felt like something additional 
to, you know, on top of everything else that, that um, uh, primary care physicians who is on this RVU, you know, volume-based uh, hamster wheel is dealing with, uh, this just felt like something extra. And, um, you know, uh, over time, as we've been able to um, show data that has demonstrated improvements in clinical measures, improvements in access, improvements in uh, patient experience, uh, really uh, improvements in, in triple aim measures. And to tell the story of how physicians feel like they're more able to practice medicine uh, akin to what they wrote about in their personal statements, um, uh, really kind of getting to the essence of why people entered healthcare, we're finding that we're getting to a point where people are, are, are more open to adopting this um, model of care. Um, obviously, um, that requires an infrastructure, and um, it's taken some while to put that infrastructure into place. Um, but as more and more of that infrastructure has been put into place and we've been able to share the story, not just data, but also storytelling, um, it, that, that's been a very powerful um, political and cultural tool to utilize to, to move the frontline physicians towards this model. And we're getting to a point now where people who have not yet experienced this uh, have um, contacted us and said, when are you guys coming out to, to visit with us? Because we really need you to come. So that's been very gratifying to see that growth and that excitement over the years. We're, we're, but, I, but you know, in spite of that, I still feel like we're just scratching the surface. We, we could do so much more. How much of that is driven, Jay, by this? You know, obviously California has a much many more years and perhaps decades of experience in their capitated or risk-based models versus other parts of the country. And and how much fee-for-service do you still have in your practices? Yeah, we still have a pretty sizable um, amount of fee-for-service business. Um, I would, if I were to guesstimate, it would be, um, you know, probably in the seventy percent, sixty to seventy percent capitated, thirty to forty percent fee-for-service. And um, uh, even though we're fairly heavily capitated, um, you know, I would say that uh, the physicians historically um, we've taken that cap and you know, then incentivized physicians to um, be volume-based. And not all volume is bad, um, but certainly if, if that's your primary focus, it tends to incent um, behaviors that are not necessarily in line with population health. And so we're very aware of that. And so we're, we're in the throes of, of trying to figure out how to properly um, balance those incentives. Uh, certainly, um, uh, physicians who work in our group are encouraged um, to provide high-quality care based on some of the clinical P4P and clinical measures that we have, and, and certainly are um, uh, rewarded for doing quality work. Likewise, for patient experience, there, there are incentives for that. Um, but we've yet... Um, I think had, we've had some difficulty figuring out how to get away from the more is better model in terms of uh, straight up volume from the standpoint of the face-to-face -face visits, um, which has made it difficult to, um, you know, really embrace things like virtual visits or telemedicine or telephonic visits or group visits because there really hasn't been the, the financial model yet to do that. But we're in the throes of, of trying to make that happen because we realize that ultimately is what's going to provide value for patients. And by extension, that's going to provide value for purchasers of healthcare, particularly as we're getting into 
you know, more employers who are, who are self-insured and um, uh, may not be um, uh, working with an insurance middle, uh, middleman. So uh, we want to be innovative. We want to we be able to embrace some of these ideas. And again, they've been slow to come along because of, of the way uh, I think fee-for-service tends to work or RVU-based productivity works. Um, but we're actively having a conversation around philosophically how to do this and then, and then working towards the political and cultural needs to make that change happen. So I would have assumed that if you were 60 to 70% capitated, some of those newer concepts would sort of naturally flow into the practice because you're receiving the global bundle and can sort of decide what you want to do with it. But you're saying that in your case, the fee-for-service thought process is still fairly strong, and so because it doesn't have, say, a, a billing code for it, it's not quite as accepted yet? Yeah, it's been um, accepted by people who um, are not as beholden to the RVU, at least philosophically. Um, and so um, what we've uh, been able to do with, the, uh, with uh, this, uh, an innovation center that we have is to start to get some data around um, what if we were to blow up the template, so to speak, and include time in a doctor's half day to uh, make telephonic visits or do telemedicine or, you know, um, and and kind of look at this not just from an RVU standpoint of the face-to-face -face visit, but look at it, look at productivity as being as as being defined by touch points versus face-to-face -face visits. And I think as we've started to do that work, what we're finding is there are some collateral benefits, meaning we can really focus on um, getting care gaps taken care of. You know, so if we have a bunch of patients who haven't had colonoscopies, we can do better outreach because we have a little bit more capacity to do that during those carved out spaces in time. Or um, maybe a patient doesn't need to come into the office, um, you know, for say um, uh, blood pressure follow-up because because they, they have a blood pressure monitor at home, they can collect some of that data, and they can share that with the doctor in in a telephonic uh, you know modality, or even through uh, you know a patient portal, um, and hopefully eventually through a, an app. Um, but um, but that concept of then then the office visit is reserved for those patients who truly need to be seen face to face by the physicians, versus just another you know uh, uh, 99213 or 99214 visit in the office, right? Um, so we can we can create a little bit more capacity, and the data, the early data has really shown that we've been able to create capacity as a result of thinking differently about how to how to deliver care. So are the physicians still measured? in your organization by RVUs, and so if they were doing some of those other time elements as you talked about, that wouldn't show up, and then they don't get credit for that? Is that what you're getting? Right. Under the current circumstances, the vast majority of the practices still are measured by traditional RVU, and um, what we're in the midst of doing is is finding a way to measure productivity in a different way and, and again, kind of building the, I guess, the data uh, capacity to measure things like telephonic visits or measure virtual visits as a proxy. And, you know, we, we've seen models, um, a group health is a really good example where, in, in Washington State where we went to go visit them. And what they're doing is they, they appear to be doing um, kind of fractional RVUs based upon the type of interaction that, one, uh, that a physician has. And what we're actually finding is that we can create more touch points with patients 
um, versus your traditional face-to-face visit. And so in a way, the doctors truly are being productive. It's just that we're capturing it better than, than, than we were before. And so our hope is to, to spread that idea uh, throughout the organization. And I think uh, the early numbers really, the, the, data, the data supports it. And I think from the standpoint of the physicians feeling like, gee, I'm really providing a service and a value to patients um, and, and better able to get a handle on some of the population health measures. I think that's been what's the most encouraging thing is, is the, they, they don't look as tired as they used to. That's great. You've talked about leveraging technology, this idea of virtual visits, and you've done some pilots, and you you mentioned a little bit about seeing some efficiencies. Can you talk some more about that? Yeah. Let let me give you a really good example. Uh, So a few years ago, before we had patient portals, um, you know, if if I had a a very anxious or depressed patient um, who uh, I was concerned about, you know, I'd probably aim towards seeing them maybe once a month because, you know, I think... The idea is that the, the more contact you have with them, there, there's more therapeutic benefit, and um, you can also monitor SSRI, um, you know, uh, dosing, et cetera. And um, what I found um, over time is that if, if you take your anxious and depressed patient, just as an example, um, and um, you're able to g- you give them permission um, to write to you and tell you what's going on in their life and you and you make the promise and you follow through on it that you will be in contact with them um, and and read what they have to say it's it's extra work on me but it actually ends up being in a in a three-month period of time it ends up being two less visits that that patient has to make to my office if i'm able to see them on a once a quarter basis but receive once a week or every other week um, emails and um, and I combine that with telephone telephone calls, um, I can better manage that patient without having them have to spend half day trying to come in to see me and do the parking and all this stuff. So in a way, I've created better value for that patient. Um, at the same time, um, I, I do feel like in many ways, it's a better use of my time um, as a physician, and it creates ability to for other patients to come in. And so I, I think it's, it's, it's really a win. I think the one area where we miss out would probably be the, co- the copay, uh, which is unfortunate. But, you know, again, that creates capacity and space, um, which is really critical in this day and age with the impl- full, fuller implementation of the Affordable Care Act and knowing that primary care workforce is, is, is um, it's, it's, under, it's undersized for what the needs of the population are. And so by being able to be a little innovative, um, I'm able to provide better care for the patients, and um, I'm able to uh, provide better access uh, for those who truly need to to come in and see me. Great. You talked about, um, mentioned workforce, and you're involved also in a residency program. Um, What about the training in population health for residents versus current physicians? Where's that at, and where does it need to get to? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, I think it's it's in flux right now. Um, you know, the, uh, about a year or two ago, uh, there uh, were new milestones that were uh, presented to residency programs uh, across the country. And um, the new milestones included um, measures of um, a resident's ability to, uh, to practice population health. And um, the, the funny thing about it is, um, as, as we were reviewing this as a faculty, 
I, I asked the question. I said, guys, um, how many of you would pass the milestones as written right now? And no one dared raise their hand. Uh, <laughs> and I think uh, part of the reason why is because, you know, those of us who trained very, you know, traditional flexionarian medicine weren't really given the tools or the resources to know how to do population health. We know some of the some docs have, um, over over time and, and through their own experience, have have done a great job of hotspotting or learning to use registries, et cetera. But the truth is, your average physician who's who's leaving residency program hasn't really been trained to do uh, panel management or, or population health in, in a robust uh, manner that's really going to make an impact. And so um, there's the workforce issue in terms of uh, sheer numbers and warm bodies, which, uh, again, you know, there's, there clearly is a primary care shortage. I think that has a lot to do with fee-for-service medicine um, and, and volume-based medicine in that, um, you know, we, we tend to reward procedures over uh, cognitive skills, et cetera. And so uh, that's a real issue, and, and, and I think um, uh, states like California, um, are struggling with that. Um, certainly, we saw that play out in Massachusetts after the passage of Romney, so-called Romney Care. I was I was actually doing work in, in uh, clinical work in in uh, Boston during that time, and I would routinely get the one o'clock in the morning during urgent care diabetes refill visit, and I would ask the individuals, "What are you doing here on a Friday evening at one o'clock?" And they would say, "Well, I couldn't get in to see my primary care doctor, or I don't have a primary care doctor, but I need refills." And so that's a real issue. I think the other factor in this, in terms of workforce, is, is how do we train the doctors that are already in the workforce to do this? And, and I think it's through programs like ours at Memorial Care that we really get people to move. And um, again, uh, it really has to do with the data supporting the storytelling. And, and that's been kind of our motto: is that um, you know it really begins at the at the in the front line. It can't come from uh, a directive from the business office. It really has to be. Um, we have to empower the the front line and and the and the, the folks who are doing care at the at the in the clinics to be able to do this. And um, we're in the process of getting there. And we certainly made some strides. But um, I'm looking forward to um, you know what the future is going to look like in five years because I think we'll we'll be that much more mature. Speaking of the future in five years. You, you uh, are called the family medicine revolution guy. Can, can you talk about that a little bit and, the, and this concept of taking a more stronger leadership role? Yeah, I, I, um, it's, it's interesting. So the, the, the concept, I, I got to give full credit to a pair of residents at um, the Santa Rosa uh, Family Medicine Residency Program. They, they came up with this concept of revolution, and it was through a series of T-shirts um, and the T-shirts said things that were kind of bold, uh, things like "use your whole brain," "become a family physician," uh, things of that nature. And it was really kind of a, a, a call to change our attitude um, in primary care that we would um, be a lot more um, assertive than we have been. That that we've played well in the sandbox of medicine, but that we really have to be willing to either throw sand or throw some punches. Uh, to, to move healthcare to where we think it needs to be. And so coinciding with that has been um, things like Family Medicine for America's Health, which is a um, you know, family of family medicine endeavor that's been launched in the last year. Um, but this idea of using social media 
to bring a community together was really where um, uh, Family Medicine Revolution or hashtag FM Revolution uh, got started. And it was inspired in many ways by, by the Arab Spring and uh, their, the ability of um, those communities to, to, to get together. And so uh, over the years, what we've really done is, I, I think, built a community of people in the virtual space that have, that have resulted in real life um, real life uh, collaborations uh, with folks like, like Greg, uh, as an example, with folks like Mike Sevilla, Mark Ryan, others across the nation. And, and more recently, there's been a growing international uh, community of folks who've embraced the hashtag where um, we've been able to create a, 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 an, an enlightened consciousness about who we are, that it's not just about becoming the physicians we wrote about in our personal statements, but it's about becoming the leaders our healthcare systems and our nations need us to be at this very moment in time, this critical moment in history in, in healthcare. So it's a critical time, obviously, for family practice. A lot of uh, emphasis is being put on moving uh, patients into that space, uh, working on patient-centered medical homes, looking at capitation, risk adjustment, data and analytics, all of this stuff. What excites you most about what's going on now, and what do you see out of that in the future? I think what's most exciting for me is um, the fact that we have um, sort of data systems and technology to enhance um, kind of the old school um, relationship that we have with patients. And I had alluded to that earlier. And in a strange way, I have to say, I actually feel a lot closer to my patients um, now. And some of that might be my own maturity in terms of uh, being further into the, my years of practice. But really being able to leverage some of those technologies and using the data to help um, the patient understand what's going on with them and to be able to display data in a way that I, I wasn't able to 10 years ago. Um, to me, that's very exciting. Um, I think it's also um, incredible to see um, health systems um, start to embrace this idea of really how to, how to do population health and how to use innovation to get there. And, um, you know, I've been very blessed to work at Memorial Care uh, because they are a very forward-thinking organization, very progressive. And um, the partnership they've had with physicians like myself and others who are in my um, uh, either generational cohort or, or uh, 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 cohort of, of mindfulness about where we are in, in, in history, their, their willingness to partner with us has been really uh, uh, incredible. And it's been, um, you know, I think partly it's been spurred on by the Affordable Care Act um, in that we, we all need to be competitive. And, and there's, so there's a real business reason for it, but it also makes it really fun. And I think that's been, um, uh, it's bled over to, to students and residents being really excited about the future. And so, you know, I, I think the pool of applicants to primary care residency programs has been wonderful. Uh, we've seen bigger numbers and we've seen better quality applicants over the years. And to me, that's, that bodes really well for the future of, of healthcare in our country. That's fantastic. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited too about the, the increased role for primary care physicians. I think it's time, time to actually get this thing right and, and move many of the patients there and then 
begin to focus from there outwards to meet the needs of the clinician of a patient, excuse me. But we've got these, right now we have these ACOs forming, we've got Medicare Advantage and full risk. You know, some of the recent ACO results have not been that great. What's uh-huh. your impression of how that's going to play out over time and uh, with both the physicians and yourself? Yeah, I mean, it's similar to what um, I think uh, Kevin Grumbach would say about uh, PCMH and that, you know, it, this is, it's not a pill. Uh, these these um, solutions are not um, uh, you know manufactured to a very standard in a standard way. Um, it's not a blue pill. It's not a white pill. It you know th- th- this involves complex systems, and I I think um, the um, sentiment that these things are going to be um, a four a three run homer uh, hitting all as- arms of the triple aim right away. Is a false. It's 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 not a it's not a um, I think a fair measure for how things are going to look. I think one thing that's very encouraging about ACOs relative to say the 90s and HMO is that it's not just about financial alignment. You're seeing uh, clinical alignment be a very critical uh, aspect of assessing whether the, the success of these entities. And I think because more physicians are at the table. Um, they're more, they're less likely to be on the menu than they were in the 90s, and um, and with physicians being at the table, um, we're going to have a role in defining what the future looks like. Whereas I think a lot of physicians kind of said, you know, I'm not a business person. Um, why should I be involved in any of this in the 90s? And I think that's a big difference between now, now and and then. Great way to close out the show. Thank you so much for joining us, Jay. Uh, Fantastic having you on. And with that, I'll turn it back over to you, Greg. And that will be the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Lee, for his time and insights today, of which there were many. Do follow this Determined to Make a Difference primary care physician on Twitter via at FamilyDocWonk. Also, the California Academy of Family Physicians at CAFP underscore FamilyDocs and the Memorial Medical Group via at Memorial Care MG. We do this weekly now at 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on Wednesdays. Join us next week when our special guest is Dr. Paul Grundy, Global Director of Healthcare Practice Transformation for IBM and President of the Primary Care Progress Alliance and Ambassador at <laughs> I botched that, but an ambassador for healthcare in Denmark. Until then, Fred Goldstein. Great man, you're saying. Bye now.